Good evening and welcome. Uh, before we get started with the program, uh, we're going to do uh, a brief presentation of the award. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, it's a great uh, uh, award. It's the premier international award of the University of Iowa. And um, it's particularly appropriate that it's offered uh, at this time of the year, immediately prior to International Education Week, which is a federally designated uh, week every year where we recognize the importance and significance of international education. Uh, I'm here to introduce someone who uh, puts great stake in sustainability. And uh, President Sally Mason, when she arrived, uh, inaugurated the Certificate in Sustainability and in addition has made a great commitment to the university to building uh, lead designated buildings and we're doing quite a few of them over the next few years. Um, so the commitment really runs from the academic enterprise, uh, the educational mission, the students and the faculty work, right through uh, the facilities, uh, the building of buildings and the maintaining and running of buildings in a sustainable way. So please join me in welcoming the um, president of the University of Iowa, Sally Mason. Well, thank you, Downing, for that generous introduction. I, sustainability is a passion, and it's something that from day one on campus, when I started to think about what the priorities should be for this great university, that one immediately came to mind. I'm very, very sorry that I didn't have a chance to overlap with our award winner this evening. He came, he finished about the same time I came. Uh, and I feel like perhaps I've simply followed in his footsteps in terms of the pioneering kinds of things that he did on our great campus. So it is my honor and a pleasure to be part of this presentation of the University of Iowa International Program's International Impact Award. And it is a very, very special delight to help present it to an incredible UI alumnus and international figure Dr. Marcelo Mena Carrasco. We are proud to count Marcelo among our recent alumni who have made a significant impact on the international stage. He is a native and current resident of Chile, earned a master's degree and a PhD in civil and environmental engineering from the University of Iowa in 2003 and 2007, respectively. Greg Carmichael, Carl Kammermeyer, Professor of Chemical and Bio Biochemical Engineering in the College of Engineering and co-director of the Center for Global and Environmental Research, supervised Marcello's dissertation research and continues to collaborate with his former student to tackle air quality issues in Chile. Dr. Maynick Carrasco began his academic career as the chair of the new Environmental Engineering Department of Universidad Andres Bello, Santiago, one of Chile's most prestigious institutions of higher education. And I hope I didn't butcher that name. Not too bad. He now directs the School Center for Sustainability Research, and he's recently agreed to serve as an energy and climate specialist for Fundacion Chile, a private nonprofit corporation emphasizing innovation to enhance Chile's global competitiveness. He also recently ran for a seat in the Chilean Senate. I'm not sure which took more courage but maybe he'll tell us. Dr. Mena Carrasco has received numerous prestigious awards, including a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Fellowship, the NASA Group Achievement Award, 
the EPA P3 Sustainability Design Competition Honor Mention, and an MIT Molina Fellowship. Dr. Mena Carrasco and his colleagues, Professor Carmichael, and current UI Civil and Environmental Engineering doctoral candidate, Pablo Cide, have spent the last year testing a new air pollution air pollution prediction model for Santiago that's been provided to the Chilean government. They hope that it will eventually help unravel the sources and predict the magnitude of megacity pollution in other countries. As Dr. Mena Carrasco's award nominator, College of Engineering Dean Alex Scranton says, and I quote, the solution of environmental problems through improved technology is inextricably related to the solution of social problems through the enhancement of social capital. Dr. Mena Carrasco believes the applied sciences have a considerable impact on society and therefore on public policy, and that the reverse is also true. His mentor, Greg Carmichael, says that Marcello is one of those people who is out to change the world. He is impatient with the status quo and has a passion for the concepts and practice of sustainability. He has the rare ability to translate his bona fide research skills into social and political action. Dr. Marcelo Mena Carrasco lives the name of this award to the fullest, international impact. We thank him for his creative and tireless work on behalf of the world's people, and we express our deepest appreciation for his continued fruitful relationships with the University of Iowa and its students. So it's now my great honor to present this year's International Impact Award to Dr. Marcelo Mena Carrasco. Marcelo, would you come on up, please? Uh, yeah, it's awkward to read uh, a speech off an iPhone, but it's a new thing. It's better than printing out stuff. Uh, so, well, thanks so much for the consideration of this award. When I got it, and same as uh, Greg said, you know, I don't know if he deserves it that much, you know, considering other, other people. I probably have a lot more debt and less money than the rest of the people that were in the, in, in the list of the recipients. But, um, and the word really doesn't, um, doesn't change the fact that the world is warming. We ha we're having the biggest storm ever at this moment in the Philippines. And air pollution is still one of our biggest threats. And air pollution does kill more people than car accidents across the world. Um, and climate change really looms as a threat to global sustainability. I'm proud of receiving this award because in this building, uh, as a child, my, you know, the Pentecost was where my dad worked. You know, he studied at mathematics. And um, as a student, I saw it burn. And now, recover in its current uh, splendor. And the University of Iowa has changed the lives of our family as a whole, and it was a, a learning laboratory where I learned science sustainability. And I also use KRUI as, as, a, as a location to train myself to becoming a better communicator. I had over 500 shows. Uh, that's why it took me so long to get my PhD. Uh, and also the Museum of Natural History also taught me as a child and as an adult the need for conservation. Um, I met great people at the University of Iowa, uh, all who supported me, um, Greg Carmichael, Jerry Schnorr, Judy Holland, Rich Valentine, Michelle Sierra, Gene Parkin, 
Kerry Hornbuckle, Dave Jackson, Don Gooker, Glenn Mowry, Scott Spack, uh, Paolo Saidi. I'm not going to go on and on. Uh, and um, so many other friends that we'll talk about later in the conversation portion. Um, I also want to thank my, fam my family, my, my dad, whose kindness could only compare that to Jerry Schnoor's. My mother, who always told me the sky was the limit. Uh, my uh, my, my uh, brothers, Paulina and Fernando, who have followed similar paths of service and understanding the people they encounter. And my, my wife, Loretta, who's not here. Uh, my kids, Olivia, Vicente, and Luisa, whose initials actually spell, spell out love. Uh, and and um, that's the reason why, why I do everything. Sustainability, as Bill McDonough said, uh, was loving the children of every species for all time. In the end, this is about loving where we live and protecting who we love. And I have no doubt we'll look upon this decade as the one that the world got together to face a climate crisis. And the university will be leading the way by example, and the many alums of University of Iowa will take home some seeds of sustainability to plant across the world. Thank you. So hello, Marcelo, and congratulations. This is a, a great night for you and your family, I know. Also a great opportunity for us to talk about sustainability, talk about positive change that we can um, uh, bring to a world that sometimes people feel a little bit desperate about, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, I want to welcome those who are, are here with us today for World Canvas. This is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa, and I'm Joan Kerr. Uh, we are in the Senate chamber of the Old Capitol Museum, and you mentioned that once this building burned and now it has been brought back, Maybe there's a lesson there, huh? Um, we will be speaking uh, tonight in a number of different segments with some of your colleagues from the University of Iowa, with also your father. And um, we want to touch on all kinds of things about international education, international research, and so on. But I thought it would be nicest if we could just start with sort of a, a personal interview with you about your life, why you do the things you're currently doing, and what got you uh, interested in the first place in this field. Well, many, many different uh, stories, uh, you know, and, uh, that, you know, some, some uh, are fruit of a little bit of my imagination. For example, I told, I remember one time, I, one of the stories I was thinking about, like, the, I saw an image. I thought it was, I saw it, but it probably was not on TV, but in fact, the oil. I, 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 yeah, I was at a beach. This is, this is true, though. Uh, I was at a beach, and all of a sudden, I saw the oil sort of floating around, and I touched it, and, I had a, and it stuck to my skin. And then I remember my mom had to like scrub it uh, uh, to get it off me, and I was thinking though, uh, you know, how painful it would be for an animal to be covered in oil. And that, that was sort of uh, brought home uh, the, the issue. Of course, going to the University uh, Museum of Natural History, and you could see the, this, this, uh, the same exhibit they've had for maybe 30 years, mm -hmm. in which you see uh, that, that the oil and or the, the, the pollution. Okay, I grew up in a small town, uh, had and you know, and I, I lived thinking about uh, socialism to be a solution for people's problem. But we, we saw that uh, in Pinochet uh, time, uh, when that kind of change is really stepped upon and it doesn't continue. But I always thought that um, sustainability and the environmental protection would be something that we would always be in favor of, and the people that were the poorest were actually most affected. So I would actually play uh, in, a, in, a, in before moving to Iowa City, in the stream that was polluted with wastewater. And it really, it really annoyed me because I, I knew that that was really affecting the quality of life. And then as growing up, I started going, I got my, um, I got a degree in biochemical engineering 
And I actually started working on the water treatment of, uh, in, in, in a two-year period in which most of the investments in water treatment occurred in Chile. So that problem of water uh, treatment and wastewater is pretty much solved in Chile like no other country in South America, a 99% uh, of treatment of wastewater. There's nothing like that anywhere else. And so that problem was solved. So the problem that uh, we still loomed is an is a air pollution problem. And um, I got my master's with Rich Valentine and saw these carcinogens in wastewater and drinking water. Uh, but in the end, the big, the big uh, health risk was that's going on in, in Chile and South America has to be with breathing. Uh, the, what I was telling you, the fact that uh, many, many people die, uh, 5,000 people die in Chile per, per pollution per year, maybe 2,600 on car accidents, so it's way more people. Hmm. So it seems that you, you would, uh, and then the heart attacks and the health, uh, uh, you know, like the asthma. I myself, I, I'm as, as soon as I moved to Santiago, I, I developed asthma. Yeah. I didn't know I, I wasn't asthmatic in, until I, I, I got in there. So that's, the, the, that's really the reasons why I do it, uh, because it's just a, a way to work for the people, but it's something that we should all be in favor of, you know. It, yeah. We shouldn't be divided politically how yeah. to address these issues. Yeah. But, but um, so even once everybody agrees that there's a problem, mm -hmm. um, finding the solution can sometimes, you know, hit, hit a rough patch with a, mm -hmm. different political groups, uh, you know, mm -hmm. going in different directions or finding funding for it or mm -hmm. convincing the people that it might take a culture change. Mm -hmm. um, you were talking with me yesterday about uh, one, of the, one of the things that really adds to the poor air quality in Chile, which is wood burning. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us a little bit about um, the kinds of cultural implications there are when, when you undertake, for all kinds of good reasons, you undertake to change the way people do things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you have to bring it home and show that there's real impacts. And, and around 70% of the people in Chile already think, and we've done this through surveys, that they're really impacted by pollution. Uh, in the US, the number is like 45%, much lower. People, the, people are worried about the environment, but that is much. A lot of things have been overcome. Actually, the US air quality is much better than European air quality, uh, uh, even though the CO2 emissions is something that uh, makes that thing a little bit contradiction. But for example, um, in, the, in Chile, it's easier to work with these issues with fossil fuel industry because our fossil fuels are mostly imported. So then you don't have the, the crazy politics you have here in the US uh, in which you have um, a political divide regarding issues such as climate change. In Chile, right, about 98% of the people believe in climate change. Uh, and um, and here, it's, it's a much uh, lower number, even though it's become more and more apparent that mm -hmm. this is true, uh, the US is being hit a lot. Wood burning is really, it's, it really hits a, a, a cultural issue. For example, I'm thinking here, in the 1990s, um, the environmentalist would have been somebody that would have a diesel car, right, because it's more, uh, has better yield, but with time we knew that these have a lot of particulates probably would live out of town uh, and in, in, the, you know, in a nice place in the forest, but the long commute actually offsets any benefit, you know, environmental benefit. And then um, probably use wood burning instead of natural gas. But the new urban uh, ecologist, the urban environmentalist, actually probably lives close to, try to, tries to work near their home, tries to live in an apartment building and share resources because it just seems to be a much more efficient way. So I think there's an evolution, and it's an unstoppable evolution, and people are really looking into this. The quality of life, traffic, the cost of uh, living, the increased uh, cost of transportation have made people shift towards sustainability regardless of their looking for environmental reasons. Maybe the reasons why people are shifting are economic, but it doesn't matter. 
uh, it matters that there's change. Uh, so I've seen, since the last time I've been in Iowa City, way more people driving, riding bikes, but you would be amazed to see that we have in Santiago the same numbers, and we actually have ja traffic jams in the, in the bike paths, which is a thing uh, pretty new to me. Um, so I think it's just an unstoppable force right now, uh, and hopefully this force will move forward uh, fast enough so we could really change the climate crisis. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, a lot of your work is academic research and publishing papers, trying to, to make a difference at different levels in government mm -hmm. and, and influence policymakers. But uh, you told me that you think that some of the greatest impact you may have had was when you, you show up on a TV show talking mm -hmm. about some of the, the real direct uh, health issues that mm -hmm. people may be facing that they're perhaps not thinking about and, and things they could do differently. Mm -hmm. First, so in Fresno, I, I, it was a really interesting uh, shift in the way I saw pollution. I went to Fresno. And people were like, why what, what, what do you want to go to Fresno? Because it had like the worst pollution. And I wanted to study the pollution and want to see what, how people uh, uh, addressed it, even though it's much cleaner than, than the pollution in Santiago. I was actually, my asthma disappeared while I was in Fresno, while most people actually get, have bad time there. So there's one guy I met, his name was Dave Lighthall, and we were going to meet outside of Starbucks. And he comes in and he's like, let's go inside. Uh, I don't want to be outside. And I'm like, he knows something I don't know. Uh, what is it? And he, it's, he's like, there's so too many ultrafine particles being that we're going to be breathing if we're out here in the outside in the patio because there's a highway nearby. And I, you know, I was already a PhD in environmental engineering. I knew pollution. I just didn't know this issue of ultrafines. I've measured the, the pollution across with a, with a GPS and my camera on my bike across the streets of Fresno, and then then I started repeating the same measurements in Santiago, and it showed that very, very different gradients, and really the gross polluting vehicles were taking over the big pollution. But when I got home, because my asthma started kicking up right away, um, I was staying at my mother-in-law's home for a couple weeks before we got our house that we had rented back, and I decided to turn on the, the ultrafine particle counter inside the home and to use this kerosene to heat the home. And that actually was the highest concentration that I had measured the whole day. Uh, and so the, the kerosene space heater that many Chileans use, maybe 30% of the population uses, uh, is like living inside the tailpipe of a car. So that, just that point of view, that the comparison is very uh, catchy, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I showed it on national TV many times. Uh, the, of course, the, uh, the kerosene space heater cell, uh, vendors were like attacking me. They wrote, my, they wrote to the TV station. They wrote to my president, uh, the university. They wanted to get me fired, um, and he defended me. I'm very thankful for that. And I responded the, the letter with, I probably they don't, they don't get many responses like that, just with a whole bunch of papers. Mm -hmm. You know, just a list of all the different scientific papers that acknowledge that what I did was totally normal and expected, that kerosene space heaters are terrible. So they lost 50% of their sales. I really crippled their, their plans for the year. and. Um, and ever since, uh, they haven't really picked up on that. So I'm outside government. I can't mandate anything. But I can use the press to make the change I want. And so I could wait for a regulation to occur and people to get together and really uh, come to a conclusion. But this was much faster. So sometimes you, 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 sort, of learn, uh, you sort of learn that uh, you can make a change uh, faster. And we need fast change in climate. Right now, the CO2 emissions of the US are very low in comparison to previous years. We never thought we'd see that. 
the generation sector, the electricity generation sector, it's at a 20-year low. It's not because Obama convinced Republicans about a cap and trade. It's just because the cleaner fuel is cheaper. And that's a lesson to be learned. Actually, uh, Ori Sivan, I remember, um, who was a former student of our, uh, that friend of mine, he also, uh, he, he, he's a you know, family member of um, some Chicago School of Economics professor, and he's very free market. And he's also saying, for example, the Atkins diet, just, you know, not a very good idea, right? But it really brought, it really uh, hit the grain industry, the, the carbohydrate guys, and in months, not years. So anyway, the market yeah. can, yeah. Uh, if, you, if you give it the correct information, could make the changes faster than, regu yeah. than environmental regulations. Yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah. the only tool. I would love to have been inside the government and have power to make changes, yeah. but I didn't. <laughs> so my only tool was uh, from the outside yeah. causing these changes. But you advise the president now on sustainability issues, don't you? Uh, the incoming president. Incoming former president, president. Former president. She's great. Uh, Michelle Bachelet. Um, she, um, I couldn't believe I, I, I actually got to that position. Um, but, um, but I'm very uh, happy because now she has a very progressive agenda. She has a, a history of being pro-coal, uh, and um, she's really, but she's, she did that because that the, and the, the conditions that occurred at the moment needed and required coal, because at the time that she was president before, she got hit with two big things, natural gas crisis uh, from Argentina. Argentina didn't want to export, so all our gas, natural gas power plants uh, needed gas, and we didn't have any, so they had to go to coal. And the subprime mortgage lending crisis hit the, the Chilean economy also. So she overcame that. Now, she, she, nobody wants to burn coal, right? And so now she has a 30% uh, renewable energy goal, uh, which I'm, I am behind, luck, luckily. And I got her to install uh, solar PV panels at the command headquarters. I'm pretty sure it's one of the first major um, presidential candidates to actually have solar at the, you know, something that's so temporary, which is a yeah. command headquarters. But when she inaugurated them, she said that uh, these panels are going to go with me to the House of Government. Mm -hmm. So it's great to know that those panels that we inaugurated are actually going to end up uh, yeah. at the House of Government next year. Yeah. Well, I think you're sort of in an indestructible force, right? I mean, you don't, you don't let up. Well, that's what my wife says about many things. And actually, this year, when I come back, it's gonna be we're gonna be together for 19 years, and we've been we met when we were 19. Mm -hmm. So that me, that means that we've been together uh, more than apart now. That's great. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, so um, uh, you did run for a Senate seat? No, no. Uh, that that story sometimes gets uh, mixed up. I got mm -hmm. offered to run for for the for Congress, for Congress. Uh, uh, for as a as a congressman um, for the Radical Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but I was just coming back to my, my job from Fundacion Chile back to the university, and I've just been, you know, coming and going. My university, I don't know how they bear with me, uh, <laughs> just going, you know, like being a, uh, there's, there's no real sabbaticals in Chile, but I, I got to do one at, at Fresno State, right? Uh, and so I, I got to do that. I worked, I went to the government, and once it, that didn't work out, I was there only two months, and I, I quit in a firestorm. Uh, actually, Michelle Bachelet was the president then, but she didn't really know me then. And um, so I, they, I came back, and they forgave me about that thing. So um, I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe Congress, I could probably do it. Uh, and, but I, I advise a whole bunch of the guys that, yeah. uh, that actually wouldn't have been my running, it would have been the guy that run against me, yeah. which is George, George Jackson. George Jackson, and I think it was a good call, too, because uh, he would have killed me. 
because he, he's one of the three leaders of the Chilean student movement, probably one of the most famous. You know, you saw at the, the Time magazine cover, like they talked about the protester, then had Camila Vallejo would be one of the most uh, important student leaders. Well, this is the other guy. He's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. And his, uh, what he does for his campaign, and I, I, I also support him, fund him a little bit uh, with my small university professor salary, is that he actually, instead of putting signs, he um, jet sprays the wall with water and with his name, so he actually cleans up the, 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 the <laughs> cleans up the the, the, the yeah, town, yeah. and that's a really great way to have political, uh, you know, propaganda. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so you mentioned in, in your talk that you um, that you worked at KRUI. Tell me mm. a little bit about that. Well, that's that's actually one of the things that I never let up. Okay, uh, because uh, I had a rough time at the beginning there, because uh, uh, you know, hipster kids they didn't really understand why a 29-year-old, 28-year-old guy would want to get into a college radio station when they were 18 or 19. And so I applied and applied, and they never let me in. I loved independent music. And then, by mistake, uh, Leslie Sherburn, a former student at the University of Iowa, got me an application for former DJs. And since, since these guys aren't really organized, they thought I was a former DJ. I wasn't, uh, and I got in. And uh, so... I waited and waited until the guys that were giving me a hard time graduated. That's a good thing about being a, a PhD student. You got a longer, longer time lapse, right? So those guys graduated, and I, I, I got to be the music director. Uh, so, and actually, some of the program, programming that's still on today is stuff that Forrest Meggers and I programmed in 2005, which is really sad because they should change the, pro the programming. <laughs> It's been eight years, you know, uh, but, uh, but it's still great to see that, I, that there's still a, some of the soundscape that has to do with uh, the, the legacy that we left yeah, while I was yeah. here. Well, and part of your mission, really, there was to, to share some of the music from around the world, right? Not just the stuff that's, yeah, that, that exactly. kids here would already know. Yes, so, for example, I had this program uh, called Coup de Style. Uh, it was the first uh, show that we showed music about around the world. But then, uh, with the people at the Iowa... Uh, international Writers Workshop, uh, International Writers Program, uh, we, I started inviting uh, writers uh, to bring the music from, from their countries, uh, from Iran, from Greece, from Chile, from um, Russia. It was just really exciting yeah. because they would all uh, bring in their music. It wasn't that good all the time, though, right? <laughs> uh, good writers uh, don't, this is something, don't necessarily have good taste in music. Uh, but I did have, uh, I guess the, the most, the biggest, the guest DJ I had was Dallas Clark. Uh, he came in, he played his music uh, that the KRUI hipster guys did not enjoy too much because it was like the Nadas, which is not really a big independent band at all, but it's like more like bar music. But, uh, but anyway, the guy, it was really a good experience. Finally, with Oscar Vega, who's a professor at Fresno State, uh, he, uh, he and I hosted a show that we sent every week to Chile. Uh, so it was, we, we're good at marketing ourselves, as you can see, and, um, and so it was actually the first internationally syndicated college radio show. No kidding. Uh, uh, right. Or, right. or so we said. So you said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was challenged it. <laughs> oh, I think that's great. Well, it, <laughs> Nobody get, was, it was. Yeah, I believe, I believe. But to get back into sort of environment and public health challenges and all that, what, what's unique in the way an engineer looks at something like sustainability as opposed to a public policy person or a mm -hmm. politician? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm struggling right now because I'm, I'm, I'm in a university that wants me to be more like a scientist, right? Mm -hmm. But then an engineer 
is like a way of being, okay? An engineer is a way of, it's just, it really defines who you are. Uh, you want to solve problems, and, that, and whatever problems they come, you'll develop a tool to solve them. So that's really the big issue because, I mean, we want to solve problems, and we don't care. We want to cut corners. We want efficiency. We, we're, uh, or at least I am, impatient. We want change fast. Uh, I don't want 10 years down the road a problem to be solved. I want deadlines and really push forward to reaching these goals. So um, that's the way that, uh, I, I guess that's the way that we face these issues. And I'm, I'm really glad that I got to study engineering because it really does define who I am. My dad uh, also does a lot of applied science, uh, and I followed through that same uh, solution. But really, uh, you need to—you uh, really meet, need to make it useful. That's the thing. And, and you know, I've, I've got some pretty decent publications, but it hasn't been really my, my priority because my priority—and I, I said this the other day to great shock to a lot of people—but I really don't care about the research. I care about the solutions and. Um, maybe that's not going to get me a tenure track right away, but uh, I mean, like at the U.S. Research One University, and maybe, but but it really uh, to have a, a long list of, of, of things and uh, you know that I could say I did this, and that maybe count the, the lives that you may have saved with the the, the regulations you help support. I wrote uh, one that's called the well, actually the PM 2.5 standard for Chile. And actually, um, that's going to save those 5,000 people's lives per year. And that's, there's a lot of drama, obviously, with the heart attacks and the asthma. And I myself am, and my kids are all asthmatic. So we know what it means and the desperation of not really to be able to breathe the air. So that's really the motivation to do all these mm. things. Well, you're still a very young man. You've got a long time left in, in uh, your career and various kinds of accomplishments. But what is the thing you're most proud of right now? Um, I don't. I, I guess recently the, the the I mean probably working with the president, uh, having spent this last year working with four or five different ministers of energy, ministers of the environment, minister of finance, having to meet the president, seeing what moves them, and actually being able to uh, influence them. Okay, that's probably one of the big things. But um, I don't know. Um, I just I just don't think I've really hit anything really meaningful. Um, up to the point. I mean, the only thing I can, because there's no solutions yet, right? Uh, I do think that thanks to the support that we've done, we have way more people riding bikes. I've been a bike advocate in Chile. We got way more awareness on environmental issues, and I, I think I have that. I mean, I, why would I say this? Is because really, my university is, uh, is really great at promoting themselves, right? Mm -hmm. They want to get free press, right? That's the way they do it. But I use this uh, and, and to my advantage, and use this fifth the, the, this power, which is the press. And so if you look down the, the, I mean, the, down the list, it's over 200 or 300 appearances per year. It's really exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> like sometimes, uh, you know, you spend, when there's a bad air uh, issue, sometimes like even like this weekend, I got my, my phone was ringing off the hook because there's something going on. And I could do 10 interviews a day. Uh, 10 interviews on you know, every channel, and then you're really hitting every home. Yeah. And, but the, but the big thing, though, is the, the message of hope, okay? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to hear a downing thing, you know, like, there's no hope, we're not going to get a solution, because that's not going to get anybody supporting any change. It's just going to be depressing people. So it's the message of hope that really is, is the one that you, that you uh, want to get out there. So when I go give a talk, for example, a couple weeks ago, I was at Stanford giving a talk to uh, Chilean students, and they love 
the, the talk because they want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear a down, downer yeah. message. They want to hear a positive message. But I do believe that change is possible because uh, all you have to do is just want to do it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's um, some people uh, compared me, you know, uh, a couple of times. They, you know that movie Rudy? Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I really, like, um, you know, when I, was, when I was a basketball player, I, I sucked. But I was very, <laughs> very uh, practiced. I was practiced. And there's something that I would never, uh, I, you know, you could be bad at stuff, but you, but you, you have to get better. So I was very bad at communicating. I had a stutter for many years, but then I started doing a, a being a TA with my dad since I was a second year student, and then I got better and better at communicating. I'm not a great communicator, but uh, but I mean, but I do think about the sound bites that people, the, the yeah. press guys like. So you give them that little little yeah. nugget they want, you know, exactly. that, and you know you're saying it. You know it's going to be on the, on the title <laughs> of the of the newspaper, right? <laughs> so you got to practice it. It's just yeah. a thing that you have to learn. Well, it's not hard to see why Marcelo Mena Carrasco is the winner of this year's uh, International Impact Award. Uh, this is part one of a four-part series on sustainability, and we'll be looking for you in the next program as well. So uh, please give a warm hand to Marcelo Mena Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and uh, this program is part two of a four-part series on sustainability, the social impact of sustainability. And our focus tonight is sustainability as a social goal. Uh, joining me on stage are Marcelo Mena Carrasco, just next to me, and Craig Just. I want to say Thank thanks you. to both of you for being thanks, here. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who haven't yet met him, Marcelo Mena Carrasco is a civil and environmental engineering graduate of the University of Iowa who directs a large sustainability center uh, in Chile. Uh, he is also the 2013 recipient of the International Impact Award from the University of Iowa, and uh, an honor to have you here. Uh, Craig Just is an assistant professor in the UI Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, and he coordinates the College of Engineering Sustainability Programs and does so much more here on campus. Good to have you here, Craig. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so the topic is sustainability, and I think we ought to just uh, first discuss how we should think of sustainability. What really does that involve? Uh, Craig, let me go to you first. Um, well, sustainability is a you know, really broad topic. Um, I might consider it a meta-discipline, really a, a mix of a whole bunch of things. Uh, but in the context of, of having Marcelo here today, I can uh, put it in, in some words. It's kind of um, knowledge in motion, and in, in particular, smart knowledge in motion. Um, uh, I teach our Introduction to Sustainability class, and I really want students to go beyond uh, kind of the classical knowledge domain of sustainability. We think about society, environment, and business somehow uh, overlapping just perfectly. And if they do that just right, we'll achieve sustainability. Um, but a lot of times that teaching in the knowledge domain um, takes the action out of it. And so um, I teach my class in the context of sustainable citizens who want to um, do things. And here's someone that wants to do things and has always done that. And so part of my understanding of sustainability um, over the years, uh, interacting with Marcelo and Forrest Magers and others along the line that uh, ran with, Forrest, uh, ran with uh, Marcelo while he was here, um, taught me that that's what it means. It's about... Um, uh, citizens, uh, in their case students, uh, acting on behalf of the knowledge they have on, um, you know, doing things the right way and uh, including others and uh, really trying to balance uh, many of the things that we uh, hold dear uh, as, as, a, as a society. Mm -hmm. So when you're dealing with students in the living and learning community that I know you uh, direct um, or any of your engineering students, uh, what's the charge you give them? 
You don't think outside the box? Or? Uh, sure. Well, it's, it's more than think outside the box. It'd be act outside mm -hmm. the box, right? And um, I like to have a shout out. I, I work with a lot of art uh, uh, majors in, in uh, my class. Uh, the Intro to Sustainability class is open to all majors. And in engineering, we typically say uh, that we want to train our students to think outside the box. Art majors are taught that there isn't a box. Um, and so I really like to embrace that quite a lot and to bring that thinking uh, in. And you know, who drew the box in the first place? And, uh, and who's in charge of that box? And so that's a, a lot of what I like to uh, teach the students and to try to encourage them to uh, understand who's in charge of the system, who's in charge of, uh, of what's going on around them. Uh, and then once they know that and they know a little bit about the society or their community around them as well, then to get involved and to go right to those people who are in charge and try to make a positive impact. So that's, yeah. that's one way to do it. Yeah, so that's definitely what you do as well. How, how do you think of sustainability? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's really about thinking of what, it's about compassion. It's about uh, thinking of uh, what somebody else might feel about something, putting yourself in, in somebody else's shoes overall. And it's a process that doesn't stop. And that shouldn't, you, I mean, in the sense that you never are really an expert. And I'm saying this because, for example, we set up a recycling center at my university, and, I th and my students were always asking for a recycling center. And I thought it was, you know, we, everybody wants this. And I, and I was already uh, helping stop uh, fire, cold fire power plants and, and not in my backyard type of stuff. And then all of a sudden, I had the students up at arms against my recycling center. <laughs> and it was a really big lesson because I assumed these guys wanted this, but I didn't put myself in their shoes in the sense that they, I was taking space away from where they, they would be able to study with the recycling center. And I would have other people come in uh, and, and maybe um, disturb what they're doing. And that was a lesson that really, there's, there was no uh, real project or activity that uh, you can impose. You need to discuss everything. And it has to be participatory. You have to have everybody discussing it. And that's what it's really about. Uh, so. You're never really done. You're never really an expert. That was a big lesson for me, and I, I don't assume anything anymore regarding that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when we talk about sustainable communities, are we talking really about things like um, uh, best use of water resources, um, uh, limiting the amount of gasoline that might be needed for transportation, these kinds of very concrete things? Or are we also talking about sort of the livability of a place, uh, the, the way the way buildings function next to one another, allowing for community gathering? And, all of those kinds of things. I guess you have to think about, well, the, the sustainability is putting uh, yourself into another person's shoe, and then it's interdisciplinary, meta-discipline. So therefore, uh, in this international aspect, you mm -hmm. see differences in, 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 in cultures. And then within those differences, you see that there's a truth that you could find. Mm -hmm. And so what is sustainable? Uh, it's, it's really, there's really no solution, because it really de defines on what indicators, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you think are more important, social aspects, economic, uh, comfort, etc. But this discussion, though, is really good because then you can see uh, within these different cultures what is sustainable. I came into the U.S. and, for example, I remember I was at the IATL and uh, we were doing all these sustainable sustainability research. But our energy building, our energy use was like $100 per person per day or something like that. It was ridiculous. I, I had a, a 30 times more energy use sitting in my office than at my house and at, at Hakai Apartments. So then, uh, why was this going on? Because uh, 
they were, they were actually burning coal to cool the building, uh, generate electricity to cool the building, instead of just opening the windows, right, in the winter in Iowa, right? So the, that, that sole change actually saves, using free cooling, which is, I, know, I know that's called right now, saved $100,000 a year after they implemented that change. And that, so in Chile, we have no, no, no heating and cooling. Uh, not that that's good, because uh, we're actually pretty cold. When I came back to Chile after the US, uh, even though the temperatures are much more milder, I was cold for the first time. And you know, the fir I remember the first shower uh, I took uh, and with no heating in, in Chile, and it was just terrible. And then, but so what is really sustainable? Be, you know, having a really cool building or having no heating? I'm probably pretty sure that having no heating is not sustainability. Uh, CO2 uh, emissions in, the, in Chile are, fi uh, are five tons a year. You guys have like 30. So we have six times less, right? But, but uh, we have that low emission because we have a large population that has very little emissions. So is that sustainable? Not at all, I, I would say. They have the right to want to have a great quality of life. So hopefully we'll look for that quality of life to be fulfilled in the most efficient way and most sensitive way for the environment. I find that uh, particularly, you know, in Iowa City or the Midwest, the United States, we have sustainability in the context of essentially rich people's, you know, very affluent people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Marcelo and others uh, years ago used to go to Hicotepec, Mexico. Um, I've taken over 100 engineering students and, and non-engineering, I hate that phrase, non-engineering, and other students, other majors. <laughs> not a, no one's a non-something, but in other majors um, into international settings. And uh, in, into places where people don't have, uh, you know, cooling and heating and running water and things like that. And then now I currently take students to, to uh, Kobridi, Ghana, um, in West Africa. That, that village is part of the two billion people on the planet who don't yet have electricity. Um, and students go, what? I thought, I thought everyone had electricity. And so just to be able to paint the perspective is how sustainable is Kobridi, Ghana? It, you know, if you want to build a house in Kobridi, you dig a hole, it's pretty much clay, kind of a mud, and you put water on it, and you build your house out of the hole. You, dig, you literally see, and then that hole becomes the place where you put your waste, mm -hmm. and then when you're done with all that, you bury it, and then if you want to build a new house, you dig another hole over there. Thatch roof, all recyclable, all sustainable, right? Um, but the, the child mortality rate in Cobridi, Ghana, you know, speaking of five times or six times, you know, uh, CO2 emissions, uh, you know, more in the U.S. versus Chile, well, then the mortality rate there will be five, six, ten times higher than it is here. And so it's really that um, kind of the health disparities that come with um, uh, the lack of uh, resource intensity. Mm -hmm. So it's really that kind of like that ratio. And how do you balance enough of raw resources that you use, whether they be sustainable, renewable, whatever the word is, to get the health impact that you want within out, um, you know, kind of putting yourself on the path for um, global unsustainability with CO2 emissions and whatnot. So try to get the students in the mindset, again, someone else's footsteps. Mm -hmm. um, I've got folks, uh, uh, colleagues in this uh, kind of engineers without borders sort of mentality that say, if you don't go, you don't know. Um, so I try to bring it to life, you know, to life in the classroom, but until a student or a faculty member or someone goes, you don't really know. And, um, and so what's sustainable to Cabrita, Ghana versus what's sustainable to Iowa City, Iowa? Inextricably linked, but really hard to define, uh, you know, which is more sustainable and, and yeah. Uh, whatnot. Yeah, so, so I'm interested in this idea of universal truths about sustainability. You, you mentioned you, that you get to the truth, you try to understand the circumstances, and somehow you do get to the truth. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of universal truth? 
there, there's universal processes, mm -hmm. um, I feel. Um, transparency, equity, um, you know, those sorts of, uh, you know, justice, those sorts of things. Um, if those can occur, then, um, you know, sustainability can be um, achieved, might be the word, but at least you're moving towards mm -hmm. it. So I like to use the phrase, the pursuit of sustainability, um, because it is a process that's ongoing. Um, just like, you know, trying to achieve justice or liberty or things like that. I think it's a word uh, that defies definition in that sense. But the process of how you would move towards sustainability uh, or the process under which you would uh, maintain a, a civil society, those processes apply. And if you can get those in the system, right, with people, you know, that don't adulterate the system and take over the system and um, uh, do those things, then, then you're on a path towards sustainability. And I mm -hmm. think that's the way I like to think about it. Yeah. True. There's a, yeah, there is no truth in the sense that, and back like Avel, who was a former president of uh, Czechoslovakia, he said, you know, stay, uh, seek the people that uh, are looking for the truth, but stay away from those that have found truth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and because, uh, the, you know, the dogmatism is really not a good thing and evolving. And then these truths have changed overall through time. So, as I said before, we have uh, 20 years ago, we thought it was sustainable to live, um, you know, in an eco community outside of the town and have a diesel 4x4 four four and have wood burning for heating. And then today, it's an eco citizen, probably lives down in, in, in a community, probably lives in an apartment. And so that's changed. That truth has changed uh, with more insight. Uh, and, and this insight is going to keep on coming. And we're going to probably find, for example, that the bamboo flooring wasn't that sustainable, <laughs> and the ethanol that we prided upon having and filling our cars in Iowa wasn't sustainable in the end. So it's going to be, um, it's a process, but at least you're always looking for the truth. Yeah. If you find the truth, you better watch out, because that's not going to lead to, <laughs> yeah. lead to good, good solutions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're both very interested in, in water purity and, and making sure that you're uh, clean water sources for people around the world. I know that one of the things you do when you go to Ghana is work with your students on water purification for the communities. And uh, I understand that you worked, um, in, I guess, on the project in Mexico mm -hmm. with, with developing ways to purify water. And I saw a little video of yours on, on, online about. So yeah, that's a great story that I had with, with uh, Craig. And I'm glad you brought it up. So with, with Greg, uh, uh, Craig, uh, we went to the to Hikotepec, uh, and there's this big water issue. And then we developed a partnership with Procter & Gamble. They have these little emergency packets for purifying water. And the proud Chilean I am of our water treatment system, I'm like, we'll never need that in Chile. You know, that's, you know, it's for underdeveloped countries. But in 2010, we had an earthquake, and we had uh, millions of people without water. And I made the connection with Craig and continued the connection with Procter & Gamble. And they, set, they sent us their emergency relief system. And then I used my capacity in the sense that I, I don't have many resources, right? But I grabbed my hybrid car instead of, uh, and, I, and I packed it with these pure packets. And I went straight to this uh, location and started putting these uh, and, and giving it to the municipalities. Of course, uh, there's many uh, appropriate technology solutions that are never implemented because you need to show that they work. So what I did was something that's pretty crazy uh, in the sense that down the river of Santiago, there's uh, the Mapocho River, which is for many years where the wastewater used to be uh, sent. And at the moment that we did this, there's some still wastewater going in there. So what I did was going on national TV, and, uh, and, I, and I went and grabbed uh, some water 
Um, I did not take care of my pants going down a little bit more, so people got to see a little bit more of me than <laughs> wanted to on national TV. Uh, but I treated the water, I drank it on TV, and yeah. it really, the people believed it. So then I sent out my students to Talcahuano, and we provided uh, water for 32,000 families. Uh, and actually, the guys from Procter & Gamble said we were actually as effective or even more than some of their emergency relief uh, firms they're working with, like World Vision or others. So, and then when we did that, though, I was like, man, that's, I, I, I could, I'm like, I was very emotional at the end because, of course, um, I couldn't believe that, you know, working in Iowa in 2004 when we 2004. went to Higo, uh, you know, uh, six years later, uh, the, what I had learned would actually help benefit my country. When, I, when at the moment I was doing this, I'm like, this is never going to work in Chile. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. And my connection to that, uh, Marcelo made that Procter & Gamble connection. I got a hold of the, the lead product specialist from Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. His name's Greg Allgood. He's at World Vision now, by the way. Um, and uh, I said, hey, these students found this, uh, these packets, and they need them in Mexico. Um, and he said, well, we're not doing it in Mexico. That's not a country where we're testing it. And I said, well, where are you testing it currently? And he said, well, in Haiti. And so then I said, I'll meet you there. And so I flew to Haiti um, that fall and met Greg at the airport, uh, actually stole his ride by accident because there aren't a lot of people like look like me tall and he looks like me and, and they thought I was Greg and I took his ride and he had to get a cab back to, to where we were going. Um, and by the way, I've learned all of my, uh, my names in the various countries that I've been to. So like in Mexico, I'm a gringo. In Haiti, I'm a blonde. And then when I go to Ghana, the little kids say, oh, Bruni, oh, Bruni, all right? So that's in Shui. So I know all my white man names in every place I've been. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, but I, I met Greg in Haiti, and at the time they were testing that uh, particular purification packet uh, with women's groups, kind of like the way a, a big corporation would with a new product um, outside of Port-au-Prince. And I learned a lot about that on how different uh, groups had used that product, and that's uh, followed me around for quite some time, and I learned a lot of lessons, and it was a neat connection through uh, Marcelo, and uh, now Greg Allgood has done amazing things with that, those packets all around the world. And uh, it's a really, uh, a really neat story. And I'm, it's, again, a connection point that Marcelo and, gave me. And, and, but it's also really cool because it really, it's like, there's, it's very um, miraculous. Because you have this water, and you teach people how, about drinking water processes. And mm -hmm. how to, uh, so in an educational setting, not an emergency setting, uh, you know, we'd go to Chile before the earthquake, and we do this uh, Procter & Gamble thing. But, so then you grab this water, it's dirty, then you teach them how to disinfect the water, how it coagulates. And they start seeing how the coagulate, how the uh, flocks are forming, and mm -hmm. it precipitates. Then you drink it, and then it's just so—it's just like um, a very, very religious experience in, in yeah, a way, I bet, I bet. because you have this water that's all murky yeah. and dirty and yeah. stinky, and then yeah. all of a sudden, well, it tastes like swimming pool water many times. It little does, yeah. but <laughs> but still better than getting sick. Right? Well, it was entertaining. The TV clip that that you can find online uh, shows the TV hosts, you know. Um, mm. waiting for you to drink it first, and then one of them <laughs> drinks it after they see that you haven't fallen over and, yeah. and died right there, and, and, uh, and then the, the hosts back in the TV studio are all screaming, oh, oh it's wonderful. It was, I mean, really, I could see that this would be something people would remember. It's a very effective way yeah. to risky. teach a lesson. Risky, risky, risky because I'm pretty sure <laughs> I got Jayarta after that. Because it doesn't really cheat, cheat, uh, treat everything. It doesn't. <laughs> There's uh, a couple things not so good at. Uh, 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 yeah. 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 Well, um, so 
you know, you two guys make engineering sound like an incredibly exciting field. I'm it sure is. the art students and yeah, and and I have to say a lot of this is a big revelation to me because I I grew up at a time when I really not that I didn't appreciate what engineers were studying, but it all looked it all looked like it was on paper to me as a, as a non-engineer. I was a non-engineer. Um, you know, I I didn't understand how much you were out in the world, even as students, thinking of those things that can help us right here on our campus. All of the sustainability effort on campus. Really, you were one of the leaders in that early on. And um, students now, this is, this is second nature to the students in your classes, right? They all want to get out there and do something. It's getting there. You know, in fact, uh, when this happened in the uh, early 2000s, I mean, Jerry Schnorr was involved too. Students essentially demanded he teach a class, uh, which is now called Sustainable Systems. And they said, you know, this isn't in our training enough. Our engineering professors keep training us things uh, to do things that we know are not sustainable. They don't take into account several things that should be in there. I would say actually engineering uh, as a whole profession has somewhat come to, to sustainability, a little bit kicking and screaming, relatively slow. We're conservative by nature, um, I would say, in the engineering field. And it takes a while to, to change a field like that. Um, it's happening uh, for sure. You know, you get people like this that are uh, kind of the early adopters and, you know, kind of leading the charge. And then, the, you know, the rest of us are kind of behind here doing our thing and, and kind of leading that big group that, uh, that kind of comes up in behind all that. So it's happening. Um, certainly, I, I, I kind of consider myself to be in a sustainability bubble. I have students that take my intro to sustainability class by elective, and so of course, they've come to my class, it's an elective, they don't have to be there, and they're ready to go for sustainability. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking to expand the movement um, beyond that group of students. Uh, I want to learn from them, and I want them to learn as well. But there's the unsuspecting passerby that's much more valuable uh, a lot of times, and I always like to find ways that we can uh, in impact that person mm -hmm. too. Well, and I know that, that we're going to be talking in a moment with Greg Carmichael and Pablo Saide, who were uh, involved with a, a research center that is investigating all these issues and trying to offer um, information to better inform policymakers uh, in our state and elsewhere. Um, so we're going to be talking about those things. But um, should I assume that these students, whether they become engineering majors or whether they took one good class when they were art majors, um, they're not going to. They're not going to lose those lessons. I mean, that's going to stay with them forever, and presumably, it'll affect the way they vote, the way they think, the way they raise their kids. Yeah, there's one guy that I, I really remember, which is Mark Kreswick, who was a mm -hmm. former UISD president. He was one of those guys. He wasn't engineering, but he he got into this, and it was really great. What he did after his leadership, and he was one of the guys that pushed for the certificate of sustainability to occur, and he actually pushed for the Green Campus uh, Initiative to start and have that was that he actually stopped the coal-fired power plant right around the corner mm -hmm. as a Sierra Club uh, yep. uh, organizer. Okay, so, and he, he's not an engineer, but he, not everybody's perfect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but it, was, it was great to see uh, that even then, that guy caused change. So this, you yeah. got cleaner air thanks to him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And, and what are your, your um, what can you tell us, uh, Craig, about what's happening here on campus right now? Are there current sustainability um, movements or, or um, projects that, <clears throat> that you would want to point to? Um, well, so the, the <laughs> neat thing for me, I'm in my 21st year here at the University of Iowa, and, and you know, Marcelo started a group, you know, Engineers for a Sustainable Future at the time, and, and, you know, they did their things, and I've been seeing these student movements, and really from the engineering perspective, and then other groups doing it as well. Now we just were certified gold, you know, uh, sustainability gold as an yeah, institution through ASHI. One of the only institutions of our size, no one's ever gotten platinum, so gold is as, really as high as anyone's ever gotten. And for our institution to now it, literally institutionalize sustainability, that's one of the neat progressions I've seen over the last 
you know, 10, 15 years here. And then those student uh, uh, groups still do their thing. And, and I guess what, I, what I'm, it'll be, I'm interested to see, uh, Marcella mentioned the legacy of the radio station and whatnot, and boy, those things are still going on. Well, I wonder which kind of legacy pieces, maybe 10 years from now, that we kind of get a little bit sleepy at the wheel, mm -hmm. and we're going to need some students or someone to come in and say, whoa, 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 you're not there yet. Um, yeah. Keep going, change something, do right. whatever it is. You know, we feel kind of proud where we are now, but that might be because we weren't where we should have been a while ago. Mm -hmm. So who knows where we'll end up. Uh, right. that, that'll be the key thing. Right, right. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been the second part of a four-part series on the social impact of sustainability, and you're listening to World Canvas. Uh, thanks, everyone, for being with us tonight. Thank you, Craig Justin. Marcelo Mena Carrasco, thank, thank you. you. Good night. Welcome to World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr from International Programs, and we're happy to have you with us tonight. This is the third program in a series we're doing on sustainability, the social impact of sustainability. And we have three guests with us tonight who are really terrific, who've worked together for many years, and uh, I'll introduce them now. Just to my left is Marcelo Mena Carrasco. Good to have you here. He is a graduate of civil and environmental engineering area here at the University of Iowa, and he's also just been awarded the 2013 International Impact Award from the University of Iowa, so um, big honor. And uh, yeah, and next to him is Greg Carmichael, who's an associate dean in the Department of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering here at the University of Iowa. And uh, Dr. Carmichael is also co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, a state-funded institute devoted to studying and bettering our environment. So welcome. And at the end, we have Pablo Saide. Nice to meet you, Pablo. Uh, graduate research assistant at the uh, Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. And um, we'll talk a little more about a particular um, model you developed that's being used now in Chile. Uh, so Greg, if I could just start the conversation with you. Um, you know, a lot of people out there in the lay community are interested in the health, health of the planet, interested in um, improving our you know, environmental sustainability and so on. But to a lot of people, it can feel like, oh my gosh, everything is such a mess. How, how are they ever going to straighten it out? Hopeless. That's presumably not the way you feel. How should we think about these issues that we face with the environment? Well, I think as we, Marcelo said in the earlier sector, uh, section, um, you know, we have to have uh, positive hope. And uh, I think that we have the resources and the understanding that we can make a difference. We can uh, follow a different path. and. Uh, that's what we try to do in the center. You mentioned the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, where we've assembled more than 90 faculty members from across this campus and uh, across the state to work on issues related to uh, the environment and how we as humans are uh, impacting the environment and uh, how we as humans could uh, impact the environment in, in different ways. Right. And so as I understand it, you at the center, uh, you do research, you try to help uh, interpret research for policymakers, or you, do, you, or do you propose solutions, or do you try to present issues and um, various ways to look at it? I think all of the above. I think uh, most of us are engaged in uh, doing research that leads to informed policy. And I think for a long time we were careful not to try to push across that policy barrier, but I think that uh, 
in issues like climate change and others that uh, were more motivated perhaps to, to uh, propose more policies and to reach out to the policymakers. Yeah, um, so can we turn the conversation now to some of the work that you have done together, um, this kind of UI and Chile collaboration related to air pollution and, and some of the issues that are specific to the um, geographical outlines of, of uh, Chile. But Pablo's work, as I understand it, has really helped you uh, create some uh, solutions. Yes, so I was, um, I was actually in Pablo's master's thesis. Um, I thought they should have got him his PhD right then and there. <laughs> it was pretty impressive because I had just graduated, uh, and I'm not sure it was as good as his stuff. <laughs> so, um, but the, the I guess sort of the different thing that uh, I did, I could have I could have um, not brought him to Iowa and make me feel uh, you know like not you know threaten any legacy I could have had, mm -hmm. or I could have you know seen that this guy is really really a uh, smart guy, and he's probably going to uh, just change, change uh, many, many things in, in Chile. He, just had, he was a very powerful force, very smart guy, brutal. I mean, he has so many papers. So, I mean, he's got more papers than I have right now, and he's not even graduated from his PhD, right? <laughs> and so, and he's made PNAS and other, these different uh, papers. So anyway, the, um, the interesting about, uh, so he, he could have gotten to, uh, he's not going to say this, though, he got accepted to Harvard, he got accepted to Berkeley, and um, other schools, uh, and then all of a sudden, but he chose Iowa. Because I, you know, in a way I told him, you know, if you want to really do modeling, this is like the world-class modeling, if you want to go to the real center, where you can make a difference, go to Iowa. And he chose it, and I think it was a good choice in the end, right? Uh, it was a perfect choice. <laughs> he got accepted to everything. And, uh, and, and, and so it was just great to be able to uh, okay, be, be working with people like NASA, and that really throws something, some, uh, a, a different uh, air to the work that you do. Even though it's pretty, pretty mundane, it's just a lot of guys with laptops anyways, right? <laughs> uh, it's NASA, right? And, and uh, so anyway, I guess uh, Pablo's done some really great research. But I just wanted to point out something about Greg's, Greg's research and how that links climate and air pollution. He, he wrote a, a paper with uh, Ramanathan, and Ramanathan's probably going to get a, a Nobel down the line. Uh, and, but it was a paper that really linked and showed that we could address local air pollution, and that could actually help us buy time on climate. And maybe the CO2 emissions are very different between countries, but pollution uh, will give us a local benefit. Uh, and also, everybody pollutes the same, and that's what I heard from you, uh, uh, despite the income, right? So Indians might have high air pollution due to cooking, uh, and the US maybe has like diesel. But in the end, everybody wants to reduce black carbon. Yeah. So that's really the hot topic today in climate and air pollution. And it really was the 2008 paper uh, with Greg Carmichael and mm -hmm. B. Ramanathan that has really changed the way that we see uh, climate policy, I think. Yeah. Huh. Um, well, so, so let's, uh, you, you mentioned modeling. Mm -hmm. I know that what you developed is a model. So tell some of us who don't really understand what this modeling is, uh, is all about. It's weather forecasting modeling? So it's, it's a mixture. So in, in Santiago, there's a very bad pollution uh, problem uh, during winter because of meteorological conditions. And this creates a condition that don't let the pollutants escape the basin. It's, Santiago's located in a basin. And then uh, uh, the government uh, has to take uh, measures to kind of try to avoid those or warn the population. So if, if they forecast that there's an episode, they will ha have 
half of the cars don't go tomorrow or even shut down industries. If the episode is very bad, then kids don't go to school and, and things like that. So in order to forecast, they, they have to have a good forecast model. And the previous forecast model that, that's over there, it's, it's not very good. And there's, it's always in the newspapers that they, it's failing and everything. So when, when I was studying uh, in, in Chile and here, I, I realized that I had the tools to, to try to improve that. And, 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 and the model that we're using is, is used for forecasting uh, weather and at the same time uh, pollution. And the, the good thing about the model is that it's, it's able to, like, like, like you, you get a forecast for seven days in weather, you get a forecast for seven days in pollution. And so you can, you can kind of see when this episode is coming and try to not, 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 not only tell the population that it's going to be an episode, but also try to avoid the episode to take in measures before to try to uh, uh, reduce emissions before so the episode doesn't happen. So even an individual person might see that the week ahead looks rather dangerous. And I could decide I'm not driving my car this week. And if enough people decide mm -hmm. to, to pull back yeah. on whatever they've been doing, they could potentially help avoid yeah. the You the can crisis. do that. And also uh, the government can, can kind of make a, a decision yeah. for them <laughs> and yeah. avoid that. <laughs> An important message of that is uh, unlike, we, we also talk about air pollution as being chemical weather. So unlike the weather forecaster tomorrow, there's nothing we can do yeah. to influence what tomorrow's weather is going to be. But uh, we can influence tomorrow's air quality by choosing not to drive, by, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we have alternatives at individual, the municipality level, community level. So we can change the forecast for tomorrow <laughs> by what we do today. So. Yeah. So, so Pablo was very silent when he was building this model. We had done models for Mexico, we had done for the US, for uh, Asia, but Chile had a particular uh, challenge because it was just very complex topography. All of a sudden, Pablo's like, I did it, I got it. <laughs> I'm like, I, I had no idea he was working on it. And it's like, and then I grabbed it, I'm like, yeah, I just you know, started looking at it and started looking at the forecast. 2010, there's a new governor, new, new president, and the guy, uh, you know, we were living under the illusion you could control air quality from one day to another. And the, the biggest thing that, the, that happened, it was like just absurd, it was Mother's Day uh, in May 2010. And uh, there, the air quality episode unfolded and the, the governor said, you can't drive your car now. Uh, and people were at their mother's house and they couldn't <laughs> drive home, right? So it was really absurd. The, the president of Chile was using a car that, that couldn't drive, he had to change cars with all these different shows. That's what the governor told me. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's like, we got to put a stop to this. That's when the, when the paper just came out. The next year, um, th they changed governors constantly. I, I met the new governor, and I told her, Cecilia Perez, I told her, you can't stop an air quality episode from one day to another. You have to take measures many days in advance. And every single day, you would do an alert day in which you ban wood burning. You're going to prevent a day which you have an extreme day that you can't drive. And you can't drive days are the really bad ones because people hate not being able to drive. Whereas wood burning uh, ban, even though they account for 40% of the pollution, it's only 3% of the homes. That, so, so you don't hit the whole populace. So, so I was telling her, be smart. If you want to keep your job uh, because guys get fired because of the model failing, I mean, this is really serious stuff, um, just do this. And so we started uh, providing every day um, the forecast for the week. And so it's like, Friday, it's going to be very bad, so I start curtailing wood Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. 
And, okay, so that, that was great because they started doing it. Then they changed the governor and I meet the governor again. It's like, you know, this is the, how it goes. And the guys started doing the same thing. So they don't really acknowledge it too much that it was us because uh, it's politically not, you know, that they're acknowledging, you know, I, I'm outside of the government and I also work with uh, President Bachelet and stuff. So they're, they're not going to ever say uh, it's going to be us that we did it. And it's not the official model. It's not the official <laughs> model. It's running in the back. Right? But we transferred it. We, we, brought, we work with the Chilean Med Office. Uh, Greg works with the WMO, World Meteorological Organization. And we transferred this. It was very successful because it doesn't happen much that you transfer stuff. Usually, you transfer a model, and then it's just like it just sits there. Nobody uses it, so it got used. 2013 was the first year that no extreme episodes occurred. The first time ever. Uh, and since we started having this preventing approach, we went down from uh, around six extreme air days to zero, uh, going down to two last year. And I want to write a paper. That's going to be great when we write a paper about that because that really shows that a model could change the future. Uh, you can't change the future about weather, but you can't change the future about pollution. And that's something that I learned from Greg in his slides, in which he had this, uh, that slide that you showed the weather. Yeah. And you always said that you, uh, that you can change your, you, I mean, it's like, it's not our destiny to have pollution. We can change that destiny. Wow. Mm -hmm. so this is pretty dramatic, amazing stuff. I mean, when will it become the official model? Well, <laughs> as Marcelo. <laughs> No, so it's very hard. It's being used. It's, 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 the thing is, you need a decree from the Minister of Health to say this is the official model. And those guys don't know what's going on. They're going to change government. But hopefully, hopefully we'll have somebody else in charge that knows about modeling in the future. But, but uh, I don't know if that's going to be the case. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it has also not only the model itself, but as Marcelo said, and Pablo's study has shown that uh, the way they were managing the air quality by was in, it was not yeah. going to be successful, and yeah. now they understand yeah. that they have to take a multi-day multi uh, outlook, and that fundamentally will, will be there uh, yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah it yeah. already changed. They, they already yeah. know that they have to do it that way. And the, the model they use is, is not that bad anyways, uh, but the idea is to have multiple models and, and expert decision, different models, to have you know, a, a, a decision that, that's, that's better for, for Everyone. And what Greg has always taught us is to, okay, the, the best model is an ensemble of models. But also, it's very important to build capacity. So and once I, I decided to go to school uh, with Greg, uh, the first thing I do in October, I chose uh, uh, to start with him in August. October, I'm in, in Chile with Mario Molina, Nobel laureate, uh, and we're talking about air pollution. And so, and that day, we had uh, all the experts from Brazil, from Mexico, from Peru. Last month, uh, we had, 10 years after, I hosted a, 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 the same capacity building workshop. And 10 years after, the capacity is much better across uh, internationally. So then you see that this, uh, this impact of, of having not my model being better than yours, but let's all work together to make something better is really a, a great um, lesson that I, that I got to learn from, from Greg. And, and I guess, so people don't see me as a threat mm -hmm. in Chile. Uh, except the politicians sometimes, but not the scientists, because they know I'm on their side. Sure, sure, sure. And so is, is uh, it possible then that beyond the situation around Santiago, there, there might be another coastal city, another very large city on the coast somewhere, mm -hmm. that would have very similar, similar meteorological um, events? Well, and I mean, the, the issue is that we've learned from Santiago, but the same modeling system is being applied for, for all of South South America and looking yeah. at all sorts of issues, but uh, 
there's lots of issues that the model can look at, the interaction between air pollution and climate, and especially the pollution component, because we just had a, a, we were in uh, Santiago a few weeks ago and had a workshop on the Andes, and uh, the pollution gets deposited on the snow in the Andes, it uh, accelerates the, the melting of the glaciers, which has huge, huge impacts for water availability. Um, and so these same issues of controlling uh, wood stoves, the, the issues of the diesel, diesel the issues of um, uh, changing the land use going into uh, plantations. There's all these forces that are going on that have feedbacks to the weather and climate and air pollution. So we're, these guys are. And maybe you could tell a little bit about the feedbacks you've seen uh, all the way out to Iowa from, <laughs> I thought that was pretty impressive. <laughs> so yeah, so we've been using the same model, but now uh, we use, uh, we, we try to see the interaction of particles of pollution, in this case, smoke uh, on weather, because there's uh, radi uh, interactions with radiation and, and clouds. And one thing that, that, that we've been finding by, by running this model is that uh, we st we're seeing a very strong uh, influence of smoke coming from Central America, biomass burning, influencing severe weather outbreaks here in the U.S., uh, tornadoes, uh, likelihood. So that's something that we were, we're right now working. It's a very hot topic. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I shouldn't be talking about that right, <laughs> right now. <laughs> but yeah, so, so these interactions uh, can go further. So now, now we were saying that we cannot change weather. Well, we actually <laughs> can. <laughs> Maybe not in a positive way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we had a conversation uh, yesterday a little bit, and you were, you were telling me how people in various parts of uh, Chile use wood, mm -hmm. burn wood, and uh, what, what a major resource that is for, for many things, from a weekend barbecue to actually heating your home or your apartment and so on. Um, can you kind of tell the audience what, what the energy sources are in uh, Chile and, and why cultural changes would be needed to um, modify some of these things? Okay, so... Wood, wood burning is actually a big contributor to pollution everywhere in the world. Mm. Bay Area, around 40%. Uh, Seattle is like 50%. 30% Paris, France, even mm. though you probably never smelled wood there. Uh, and even in Iowa, I'm pretty sure the contribution is pretty big. But in Chile, um, in, in Santiago, it's still a big contributor, even though they banned uh, open burning wood stoves, uh, in, and you can't use it in bad air days. So that means that most people shifted to clean fuels because they can't use it on bad air days, so why would you gonna have a big stove yeah. if you're not gonna be able to use it every day? So people shifted. Uh, and why they shifted, some people say it was because, you know, they're used to getting their, so I asked the guy, he's like, well, back in 1991, we had just come out of the, the government dictatorship and people were used to be forced to do stuff, right? So you can't use your wood burning stove, that didn't seem as bad as not being able to go out at night right. because of the <laughs> curfew, you know? So, so, but in south of Chile, all of a sudden, and this is something that we've already uh, been doing, uh, we put out a report every year about the state of the air in Chile. It goes out, I, I do a rounds on every TV station, et cetera, and I showcase that actually we have pollution that's as high as Beijing mm. in the south and, and towns of 300,000 people. And so that, and it's really related to wood uh, and, and heating demand. So if you plot, let's say, how cold it is versus the pollution, it's just a straight line. It's pretty incredible. So how are we going to shift that if it's much cheaper? Yeah. Uh, it's going to be, I, I tell my students, it's going to be our grand challenge for the next 30 years mm -hmm. because we need to, what are we going to do? We can tell them to use natural gas and increase CO2 emissions. 
we got to do something that, that something's going to give. And then you have to balance. So what is sustainable? CO2 or particulates? I mean, in this case, you do have to choose. You pick your poison. One will have a global problem. The other one will kill you, you know, locally. Uh, and so there's really, I, I really don't know the answer today. But it's going to be our big challenge the next year. But we all know that better efficiency in homes is going to always drive down demand anyway. So uh, that's the solution we're looking for right now. Mm -hmm. And that's what the, in the different programs of the uh, presidents that I've worked with, et cetera. What, what is the likelihood that wind energy, that solar energy, can pick up the slack here around the world? If we're no longer using well, these carbon fuels? Unfortunately, heating, so, so you would have to heat with uh, solar, right? And that's very inefficient. Then you, then you want to heat your home in, with solar, well, then, you know, you need to concentrate a lot of it because when you're cold, there's not much sun, mm -hmm. right? But then I'm seeing solutions in, in Denmark in which they have solar district heating. Mm -hmm. So you have a, a solar array heating water distributes a whole bunch of, uh, of hot water through the homes. But you have a culture of district heating because you already had these boilers before. In Chile, it's a lot of a small heat, yeah, home, uh, heating. So, but there, it, it can be a, a part of the solution in the sense that we go to electrical uh, generation, but that's going to not be that efficient. We still need to do a lot of passive mm -hmm. uh, design, uh, design homes that actually don't require energy. Forrest Meggers, which is a former uh, student uh, at the University of Iowa and founding member of EFSW, he's a professor at Princeton right now. He spent the last two, last five years actually working in Switzerland and in Singapore regard uh, to building, uh, to designing buildings that will not require energy at all. So we need to work on that. But that's actually an architectural uh, design, a mechanical engineering design type of question. But that, the lesson there, then, that we do need to be working with all the disciplines to be able to yeah. find these solutions. Well, Greg, let me um, kind of wind up our, our uh, segment here by asking you what some of the key questions are that people who are policymakers here in Iowa or in the Midwest are. What, what are the questions they're asking you? Well, I think in the, in the larger picture, there's this space, climate change and CO2 policy, we have to deal with that, but we have uh, difficulty going after CO2 for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so I think this nexus with, with the air pollution area that, that buys us the immediate health impacts uh, benefit yeah. uh, and gives us, buys us some, some time from the climate. So, so things like uh, uh, diesel, uh, clean diesel, getting rid of that, and. Uh, a lot of interest uh, both here and internationally in terms of cook stoves and uh, uh, fireplaces and those sorts of things. Uh, it's this wood issue again, and how do you move to, to cleaner energies? And, yeah. and these are some, these these cook stoves, like these solar cookers that don't require wood. Like, yeah, I've heard there's about all sorts of and, there's all sorts of yeah. solutions out there that are technology. And unfortunately, what we're learning more and more is that technology is only a small bit of the problem. It's all the social context in the in all the yeah. support the decision-making support that goes around that so it's yeah. a much more complicated than just building a better cooker mm -hmm. yeah. well it is so funny too and so in, in a way um, confusing to people who at, at some point you know if, if you're a person who uh, thinks you're actually doing something really good for the environment by having a, a wood stove in your home you you know you cut your own wood and you're self-sufficient and you know you're not using uh, these these oils and gases and whatnot, you're probably not aware of, of the pollution you're sending out into the air. And, mm. and I mean, it would be depressing for somebody who really thought he or she was doing the right thing to learn that 
there's, there's a sort of a heavy price to pay for this as well. So, so there's just a lot of education people have to have, I guess. And it's very cultural. And even in what I've learned in my times going to Chile, they also like their barbecues. So that's yeah, another issue. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you told me about that, that on days like our 4th of July or your and national you can, holiday. You can see when there's a soccer game or something, you can see the pollution levels go up from, the, uh, from all the, uh, uh, the barbecues that are taking place. I'm guilty. <laughs> but but uh, Kirk Smith from, uh, from uh, UC Berkeley, he says, that actually the second most unhealthy thing you could do for air is actually, uh, after smoking, is burning wood. Um, and so, uh, in fact, I think when we do privilege this wood burning, you're really smoking the air. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you know, and, that's, it's, and then so we do all these public policies and you can't smoke at a, at a bar at, at, you know, in Iowa yeah. City, which is great. Yeah. But uh, it, it's really important. But you could have a roaring a fire, fire in there. <laughs> there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, wow. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Pablo Saide, Greg Carmichael, and uh, Marcelo Mena Carrasco. Thank you so much. Uh, you've been listening to the third part in a four-part series of World Canvas on the social impact of sustainability. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being with us tonight. We'll see you next time. Welcome to World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr. It's nice to have you with us tonight. This program is the fourth program in a four-part series on sustainability called The Social Impact of Sustainability. Very happy to have you with us. And uh, I'd like to introduce the guests just next to me here. We're going to have a lot of fun in this uh, half hour, I think. Uh, Marcelo Mina Carrasco is in the middle here. He's a civil and environmental engineer who earned his master's and PhD degrees here at the University of Iowa and was named the 2013 International Impact Award winner at the University of Iowa. And great pleasure to have you here. Marcelo is a professor, uh, sort of a policy consultant, and he's also the director of a large sustainability center at a university in Chile. Uh, Jaime Mena is next to me here. Marcelo's father, also a graduate of the University of Iowa. He earned his PhD in mathematics here some years ago, and uh, he is a professor at a mathematics institute at uh, Pontificia Universidad Católica de Valparaiso, Chile. Sí, okay. <laughs> and uh, I understand he's the author of calculus textbooks that have caused many students to consider flinging themselves out of the windows. And, um, and um, uh, Phil Kutzko is at the end here. Uh, professor Kutzko is a professor in our University of Iowa Department of Mathematics. He has long been an advocate of uh, greater inclusiveness in higher education. And Dr. Kutzko received the 2009 Presidential Award for Excellence in Science, Mathematics, and Engineering Mentoring presented by President Obama at the White House. And a uh, uh, side note, a very important note, um, uh, Dr. Kutzko and his colleagues in the math department had received the same award in 2005 for their very determined efforts to recruit students from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds into graduate programs here at the UI. So, Phil, very great to have you here. So, um, we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, an international education means to individuals and to an institution, and then to sort of the sense of community we all have living as, as uh, you know, members of a common planet. Um, Marcella, you came here after living here as a younger person when your father was getting his degree, your uncle studied here. Um, I know you have a sister who lives in Iowa. What has it meant to you to be connected to Iowa in this way? It was something that we, that I, I always wanted to come back to. Uh, I didn't apply to any other school than, except the University of Iowa. 
it was, uh, I remember for many years after returning to Chile, I would have dreams about the Iowa City Public Library. Mm. And it's, and, because it's just such an amazing place, right? And, and of course I lived, and some people think that maybe it's not a very sane thing to do, but I actually lived in the same apartments that I grew up with uh, my parents. And, and I actually drove yesterday through the, the old play, playground, you know, the, where, where I used to play. Even though I don't see myself, when I saw the playground, I didn't, I didn't really notice that it was my playground too, but it was my kids' playground, right? So, so anyway, the University of Iowa has been super important to us because uh, it really gave us a, a, an opportunity to, to, to learn, I mean, to rise uh, above. You know, my dad really, it was a big level, level of rising. He was a PhD, right, in Chile, in a time where there's, there weren't many, many PhDs. And he really influenced most of my family. So my, my, the number of PhD students or PhDs at my family uh, rose a lot. And because we saw that all of a sudden, this really nice guy, he could, have a, he could be a, 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 a PhD. And so right now, we have another, I have another cousin of mine getting his PhD at Columbia. Another cousin is a professor at Catholic University. And he, he'll, maybe he won't admit it, but the reason why he is a professor today is because of my dad. And, and the opportunity that he took from the University of Iowa at the moment that he took. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Well, that leads us back to you, um, Professor Mena. Um, how was it that you came here to the University of Iowa? What brought you here? Well, actually, I, well, I worked here many years ago. I, I got many friends here, so I, I, it's hard for me to speak English now. No. Uh, <laughs> Well, the main thing is the, when you have a study outside the, your country, you open your mind. You met different things. You know, uh, you met people thinking that way. You know, another country, another life. And the, the thing is you change. And when you go back to your country, you try to copy the good way the thing you do, you, you saw in USA, was uh, I tried, after that, I tried to do everything in my country to help the people, to help my students, to, to change the life. And that was the, the main change I had in the, in coming here. Marcelo is a, is a wonderful resort, but we get a lot of uh, help here, for instance. <laughs> uh, I uh, teach him, mm -hmm. and I could study very well because the people here is very warm. Mm -hmm. uh, was nice to stay here, and I could, if I can study and can finish my PhD because Iowa City is a special city. Iowa City is a special city. That's very nice. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is probably our my favorite city. By, by far. And then, for example, we were able to keep our Catholic traditions because we, were, we were, uh, had a scholarship at the Iowa City Community Grade School at the moment. Uh, it's very unfortunate that a lot of these things are, don't, don't uh, exist anymore uh, in the sense that you know, it was torn down maybe, I don't know, many years ago. But you know, I could still walk to see where it was. And of course, I had uh, Sister Agnes uh, teach me uh, how to speak English at the moment. And that's a great opportunity. And great thanks to the community that actually gave us a scholarship to be able to continue. 
our, our Catholic traditions. Um, and so uh, that really made a difference for my, my sister. So she's a professor at Central College. My brother, who works at, uh, in, in Boston right now, he got, and, it, and my brother actually shows like the, the real uh, meritocratic uh, opportunities that you could take in the US educational system. So my, my brother was sort of a, a problem child in, in a way when he was a little boy. And, and so then uh, all of a sudden he really didn't see, have a good path in Chile, mm -hmm. right? But he comes here and he starts working and then he uh, goes to Kirkwood Community College, right? And, but then you could, you could spring from Kirkwood to the University of Iowa and get your full degree. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's a really great thing, a very unique thing mm -hmm. because that doesn't happen everywhere in the world. Now then he gets his, his master's at Wash U uh, social work and, and uh, no, in public health. And uh, we never, we never, you know, we didn't see that was going to be an opportunity, but that, so the, it was a very uh, good way that you could take the steps that you want to take at the moment you want to take them. And it's a very forgiving system in the sense that uh, you could take that opportunity, but if you don't, it's not going to be the end of the world. So, yeah, in the end, so then <clears throat> Fernando is also a very important uh, example of how this educational system could really help you thrive if you, if you take these chances. Yeah. yeah actually, I, I try to do this in Chile now. The, our university are quite close and they, they are different universities now, but uh, we are working on, my university worried about to do what he's doing now in, in here. The people need to, to give one step first and then the other step. Yeah. So the, the problem is to give the, the hand, to teach, to pull him to high, go to high, high yeah. in the education. Where uh, it's clear if they know mathematics, they know, they know language, and they know science, they can choose the, the very world. They can choose the way to solve the life. Uh, for instance, the, what, he, what he, do, he does uh, is a... As I think it's, it's very important for the people. You can choose if you know. Yes. If you don't know, you, 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 yeah. you just do what everybody does. Yes. So, so learn and know is very important, and we have to clear that. Mm -hmm. And that is the, the same for instance, the minority. Mm -hmm. Minority is that. It's, it's very important. Well, yeah, that, that leads us to you, Phil. Um, you've taught here for a long, long time. And you have long had an interest in expanding the kind of um, um, population that takes graduate uh, credits and earns graduate degrees here in multiple areas. Tell us a little bit about why that was important to you. Well, it was interesting enough. I mean, as an American, it's important to me because um, one of the things we learn when we travel to places like Chile or Mexico or even in our own country to Puerto Rico is that other places are not so divided and split up by ethnicity and, and uh, pain from the past. So when you live in a country like ours, and you, as you've heard from my, my friend uh, Jaime say and his, his son, um, it breaks your heart to think that with everything that we have, we're so apart still. And so our goal at the department, all of us feel that way, is to see if we can't mirror American demographics in our graduate program. But I should say that our great fortune was that we had Chilean students. That is to say, um, it, was, it was just a matter of um, circumstance in some sense. Things were difficult in Chile, as I'm sure you knew during that period when Pinochet was in there. And because of that reason, several Chilean students began to come up to Iowa because they had a connection in Juan Antonio Gatica, who was actually on our faculty 
and who went down and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, he, was, he had gotten his PhD or he had gone down to Chile, and so he was able to come up and several students came with him. Um, over that period of time from roughly um, um, maybe 1973 or 1974 up until 1992 or 1993 when, when the government went back to being a democracy, during that time, the University of Iowa Math Department actually graduated 25 PhDs from Chilean nationals, which is more than even Santiago has ever produced. So we all of a sudden learned this, had this remarkable experience of being in a department where Spanish was spoken. Uh, very few of us knew Spanish. I was raised in housing projects in New York, but sadly, and this is the point I guess I'm making, we were taught that we should learn French because that was how we got out of the projects and we went up and here we were with Puerto Ricans right next door to us and, and we never thought to speak with them and we never could speak with them. And so it was ironic to me that here I was in the middle of Iowa, which is indeed a wonderful place, Iowa City, and here we were with an influx of folks from Chile and we were learning to speak Spanish and, and the whole department changed. So I think it was natural for us, um, we were lonely in a sense when they stopped coming and I think it was natural for us to extend that same courtesy to, uh, to our American minority students and, and the numbers are roughly the same now. We've had 25 PhDs among um, underrepresented minority US citizens and our population at the department is about 20% minority. So that's, that's been a wonderful thing for us and it's been a blessing to have had the people from Chile and to have the second and third generation connections now. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. And um, the, um, your, your efforts didn't really stay within the math department. I mean, as I understand it, you have been quite a vocal proponent with, you know, throughout the university that departments need to really be looking beyond um, what might be considered the most, uh, what should I say, the, the most easily seen group of potential students um, to, yeah, to look for new. You know, it's an interesting thing. I think about when my friends from Chile first came here and what they might have thought. Because, you know, when we go to Chile, we learn many things. And when um, international students come to Iowa, we learn much from them. But I wonder if we think what they see when they come here. And I know from my colleagues that, after all, they came to a department where every graduate student, they were all graduate students, every graduate student who was American was white, was of European descent. There wasn't a single minority student there. And yet, when they went to high school, they might, our friend, um, Roberto Johnson, his children, if you, and I don't mean this in any way to be amusing. On the contrary, if you go down to Chile now and you meet, you meet Roberto Johnson's children, they speak like African Americans because their first friends in high school at West High were black students, and so they, they became close with them. So you wonder what message we give to our Chinese students, the people from Chile, people of color, all of them, who first have an impression of our university system that it's white when we have a country that is no longer white that troubles us. And now I think, and you mentioned Oscar Vega, who came up from Chile and who's a friend of, 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 of Marcelo, and um, Oscar came to a department that was very different. Oscar came in 1995 or something uh, like that? Yeah, yeah. He was my peer. He was, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, he was in 2001. He came in 2001. Yeah, 2001. Yeah. Okay, so by 2001, our department was 10% minority. And Oscar was one of the movers and shakers in our minority program as a graduate student. And now he's at Fresno State, and I run a program nationally that attempts to do this throughout the country, um, called the National Alliance for Doctoral Study in the Mathematical Sciences. And Oscar is a big part of that now at Fresno State. 
So what I mean is, I like to think that Oscar saw something that we can be a little bit more proud of when he came here than our folks who came earlier. And I hope that we can extend that to the rest of our university so that when Chinese people come, and we have more and more, they, they look at us and they wonder, why are we all white at the university when our towns are more and more mixed, when our university, when our college is more, our, our state is more and more mixed, our, our country, and we have an African-American president who, by the way, again, the world saw as a sea change in America, 80% popularity throughout the whole world. I mean, so we have to ask ourselves at Iowa, do we really want to do international programs without becoming diverse with our own population? Is diversity an issue in uh, Chile? Do you have, whether, whether either racial diversity or uh, income level diversity, access to higher education, is this an issue that you deal with in Chile as well? Yeah, well, actually, yes. <laughs> yeah. As you, as you, maybe the answer is coming with the, the student movement. Student movement, yeah. yeah. Right now, so you yeah. know, there's a big student movement uh, demanding free education because they're seeing they they're getting access to education but they have to have large debt mm -hmm. to pay after maybe you'll see some of that going on in the US in a couple of years from now mm -hmm. you know this uh, almost a subprime type of thing going that you you're not getting enough out of your education and the jobs that you're getting in Chile it's inequality is is almost it's more unequal than the US the, the US has got terrible inequality uh, we've come to learn recently but we have a classist thing going on in Chile. Yeah. So the moment that somebody opens their mouth, uh, you know where they're from. Mm. And the moment, and, and where he could get to, which is really the most unfortunate thing. And then uh, most of our leaders are come from five or six different um, schools. Schools, just, you know, not, not even like, uh, just, you know, our leaders are just from very limited schools and neighborhoods. So there's a classes issue. Uh, so we don't have a race issue, maybe a little bit. Uh, we have different tones of brown, right? right? But, uh, but it's differently, but it's definitely a classes issue. And that's really uh, terrible because um, my friends would see me talking to people from other places in, in Chile and we'd have two questions. What school do you go to? Where do you live? And that defined almost everything about you. And that's <clears throat> not good, you know, because that means that you're limited and that you know you're gonna be limited. Now, I, I, talk, I work with this guy, uh, this presidential candidate that he didn't win, he didn't win the, the primary, uh, but he's great, Andres Velasco. He's actually a US trained guy. He lived most of his life in the US, and he really believes in meritocracy. And he wants, and, and so the new thing now, every, all the presidential candidates are saying is like, you know, we, don't, we, we hate this thing that we have this political party that's gonna choose everything, and you guys, you can only get up to here. You know, my family itself, um, I have an uncle, he's a great guy, but he doesn't have the family last names to climb higher in the positions of power and where he's, so that's really what we have to overcome. It's not a race thing, but it's a class thing. Uh, but and now we have uh, incoming racial uh, potential tensions with uh, immigration from Peru, Colombia, and Ecuador uh, that's causing some of the, some of the, some tension that, yeah. that's gonna come in the future. But I think mm -hmm. we should be able to, uh, cherish this, this uh, diversity and not try to stop it. Well, actually, I, I met the other way to, to learn to teach, to teach in children. I studied with different people, different culture, and 
uh, everybody, everybody can go to the same place. So the relation between the people made the life different. Mm -hmm. After Pinochet happened, what we have now, what we have now we, we try to change this to the other way around. But uh, I, I remember in, in my university, I met uh, a people of the different class or uh, different level of education. So when you, you live with them, everybody can uh, change and everybody knows this guy is good, mm -hmm. so I can do something for him as I, as I want. Mm -hmm. So they met people different. Yeah. Uh, they don't uh, put a war in between them mm -hmm. because they know they are different people, they look different, they have, they have different war, uh, uh, clothes, and, but this, gay, this guy is good, so I need to, I need them to do something, mm. and the other way around also. So I, I remember that this kind of education we have, but now, this is, as he said, it's quite different and it's, it's, it's a problem because mm. there are tension between the, in the population, you know? Yeah. There are places where they, they hate to the other guy. Yeah. We was, we was uh, calling, uh, remember when we were coming here, they say, why some people do that? For instance, the car just put some oh, yeah, yeah. scratch to them. Yeah. Yeah. So they say, why? Yeah. And the, uh, the, the reason is that the, what we are telling now, yeah. the, the partition, the, the, the partition yeah. line mathematics. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. It's a mathematic work, sorry. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So that, that, that we, we, must, we must change this. Yeah. And that we are working on this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so my father, he teaches. Uh, so he actually um, was a, ma uh, a scientist in the biomathematics sector, but all of a sudden you started seeing that the, the educational system was a little bit fractured. So he switched over and transformed into teaching the teachers, right? Uh, uh, grade school, high school. Mm -hmm. And it's a very good transformation because you saw that really the people that were training them weren't yeah. uh, that good. But the, the other thing that my dad has done in my universities also is that we actually teach first generation uh, First generation of people uh, all the time, right? I mean, uh, of of of, um, of students uh, that are, are going to college, mm -hmm. uh, their parents didn't go to college, uh, and even and that that's a really good thing. For example, um, I remember that my one of my colleagues was telling me um, she had a she had a emergency uh, visit. Paramedics went to her, her house, and then so they're talking to the to the person, the paramedic. The paramedic guy is like, "Well, where do what do you do? Oh, I, I teach at UNEB. Okay, and oh my my son goes to UNEB." And he's in Iowa now, uh, uh, you know, and uh, he's going to be, in a, he's going to study in the U.S. And, um, and so then that's the thing that you could do. Uh, so, so this guy, he, he, his, his parent, because you don't need to be a college degree to be a paramedic in Chile, the guy, you know, is able to jump and you could make a, a big jump in his, in, in his uh education and his economic status. Whereas the big universities, the, the traditional universities, Catholic University, Universidad Chile, the guys you know, already have their future secured. They went to the greatest schools. They, it's like Harvard here. You know, they, they have no, and I was even listening to this professor the other day saying in despair that these guys don't do any innovation. The guys that should be doing most innovation are the guys that already have their future uh, secured, right? But these guys are just hurried to graduate and make money. Whereas uh, the, the difference that you can make in a university like, uh, like uh, uh, University of Iowa, as we've seen, 
as Universidad Católica Paraíso is that you could really make that shift from the first generation to second generation. Hopefully down the line these guys are going to be able to, to reach the goals. And as long as we keep the system equal and then we don't have these ghettos of, um, of power and, and classism, uh, we'll be able to really reach development. Because there's no country in the world that has ever reached development with the levels of inequality that Chile has um, up to now. So, so, Phil, what do you see around the country? Do you see this as, as, a, as a, something that many universities are concerned about, trying to find ways to, to um, you know, among their faculty and then certainly among the students that they're recruiting and bringing in, make it look more like the world? Yeah, more I like think it's US. not going to come, although the, the university here is very supportive, don't get me wrong, but the impetus for that is not going to come from the universities because the universities have a lot of different priorities that they have to balance. The impetus in our case has come from the faculty. We, in our department, um, it sprung up, as I mentioned, and, and the department um, has won this award, from, not from Obama, but from President Bush, the presidential award, and uh, we've gotten attention from our uh, mathematical society. So what we've learned, the lesson we've learned, and we're learning it now in physics as well, is that if we're going to change the culture, we need to change it in our discipline. It's a subtle point, but what we do at the program that I run it involves 250 undergraduate faculty around the country and 26 PhD granting institutions. You mentioned Washington University, the math department there is, is one of our groups. So those faculty are interested in making these changes because it makes sense to them professionally and also because it makes sense to them as Americans. They've, they've lived the same life that I have and they remember on the March on Washington and they remember Dr. King and they get to be 60 years old and they start thinking to themselves, I hate to think of myself retiring in a department that's all Northern European. And so they begin to think to themselves, maybe we can change this. And if you give them the model of our wonderful department, they start to think that they can do it too. So I think that it's never going to be, as you all said, and it's no criticism, those places where power is concentrated. I would put it a little bit more gently than you would, actually. The places where power is concentrated by their, their job is to be stable. That's what they do for a living. And, and, and we need them in many ways to keep the stability of those institutions. And universities are like that. And I think the place where the change comes is from the people in those institutions, in our case, the faculty. And um, we're seeing this change now in Iowa. And we're, uh, I should add that the University of Iowa and Iowa City, as these gentlemen will tell you, is one of the best places in the world to do this sort of thing, and certainly in our country. People here are very open-minded, very moderate in their goals in life. They're not particularly greedy, and they're very open. One of the things about Iowa is nobody here thinks that they're in the center of the world. And so they're very open to learn about other sorts of people. Um, I can't think of a better place to live. My wife and I have just been as happy as we can be here. So I think it has to come from the faculty. And I just say briefly, in Iowa City, it has to come from the citizens of Iowa City as we begin to change demographically as well. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a wonderful conversation. Philip Kutzko, Marcelo Mena Carrasco, and Jaime Mena, thank you so much. This has been uh, the fourth part of our four-part series on sustainability. I hope you've uh, been able to see each of the episodes, and if not, you can find them all uh, online. Um, our next program, is, which you can, see on, uh, you can see live in this room on December 6th, is on teaching innovation, and we hope you'll be with us for that. So thank you very much for being here tonight. I'm Joan Kerr. Good night. <laughs>